All right. Well, um, today we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app or whatever you like to use, um, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, and we'll get started. If you are new to River's Edge, uh, we are about halfway through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most um, influential teaching of Jesus and perhaps the most influential teaching in world history. Uh, The effect that this single sermon has had uh, on history and culture, particularly in the Western world, uh, can hardly be overstated. But uh, despite having widespread influence over the last couple millennia, uh, this text continues to mystify uh, many of us. And we tend to approach the Sermon on the Mount as if it were a bunch of sort of randomly collected bits of um, truth and wisdom from Jesus or just a list of impossible rules that we could never follow. And so collectively, we seem kind of unsure of how these teachings relate to our lives um, and how to actually live under them and how they even relate to one another. Uh, And so uh, what what started as this very profound teaching of Jesus with a very intentional kind of flow and development from one thing to the next uh, has has become to us kind of a a mystery. It's kind of lost on us a bit. And even on scholars, if you read a lot of the scholarship around Sermon on the Mount, they seem um, a bit confused as to what Jesus is actually talking about and what he's after. But... Uh, In our humble opinion, uh, everything that we've been studying on the Sermon on the Mount is simply the outworking of Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is now arriving and is alive and at work among us. And so now he's come to teach us how to live in that new kingdom and how to live under the kingship of Jesus himself. And so as we um, submit our lives to Jesus and dwell in the transformative love of God, we find ourselves continually filled with the Spirit of God, and in the process, our hearts are actually renewed from the inside out, and we are at last able to be human as God intended us to be. And so Jesus is giving his disciples a picture of what the renewed kingdom heart looks like, of how it operates in the world, and how um, they will actually look, and how they will actually operate as they come under his kingship as his disciples. And so pulled out of that context, the words that we are about to read will appear utterly ridiculous. But, But I want you to listen as Jesus gives us yet another picture of the kingdom heart operating in the world. We pick up in verse 38. These are the words of Jesus. He says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. These words are some of the most well-known and most controversial words in all of the Sermon on the Mount. 
from the viewpoint of the secular, chaotic soul, this is foolishness. The outside world will look in on these teachings and very naturally believe uh, as they hear Jesus saying, hey, turn your, your cheek for another slapping and, and love the one who, who visits evil upon you. The outside world will look in on this and, and quite naturally through the lens of their own lives, untouched by the transformative teachings that Jesus has already given thus far in Sermon on the Mount, they will view this as something that will make their lives utterly miserable. Why would I ever want to do that? And so we have to remember the unique context in which Jesus is speaking in. That he's saying, hey, the, the kingdom of God is already freely available to you and you will find blessedness in it no matter where you come from. And, and now, here's how, here's how you'd operate in it. And so Jesus sets out to teach his disciples about personal injury and retribution within the inbreaking kingdom of God. And he starts by highlighting the Old Testament law of Moses, in which God told his covenant people, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so um, we read this thousands of years removed and um, how I typically assume um, th this was meant to be implemented is, is I assume that this was God's um, permission uh, or even encouragement for his people to take revenge and retribution. That's just what I think when I, when I read that verse. I mean, God is encouraging you to go out and exercise revenge. So if someone takes your eye, then recover as quickly as you can, get out of your hospital bed, and go take their eye in return because they deserve it. Which, um, if we go with that interpretation, actually makes Jesus' interpretation of the law all that more confusing. And I think um, it has the potential for us to, to kind of have a confusing uh, and bifurcated view of God where we say, oh yeah, there was this grumpy Old Testament God that actually encouraged his people to take revenge. And then there's Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth who seems completely opposed to it. And I'm not quite sure how to fit the two together. And so the first thing we need to understand is God's original law and the original heart behind that law that God had for his people. And the original law was not to encourage revenge, but rather to limit evil by restraining it. What we see in the human condition is not just the libido dominandi that we talked about last week, the desire to dominate others and have your will done over theirs, but also what we see at work is that when someone has imposed their will on you, especially in a hate-filled or violent way, your most natural reaction is not going to be to just take revenge in kind. Your most natural animalistic reaction is actually going to be to go beyond the, the, what the evil act that was done to you and take revenge in excess of what was visited upon you. And this impulse is incredibly deep-rooted. Shortly after what theologians call the fall, in the very beginning of the Bible, as humanity takes bold and dangerous steps away from God, away from his presence, away from his love, away from his design for humanity and for creation, what happens is that we see humanity stepping out of the light, whether they knew it or not, and into darkness. 
and they very quickly become accustomed to that darkness, embrace that darkness, and, and actually become conditioned by that darkness. And so very early on, right after Cain kills Abel, uh, we encounter this kind of obscure character named uh, Lamech. And in the midst of um, kind of this, the fallout from the fall and this growing kind of chaos and violence on the earth, uh, Lamech actually gives us the first poem of, of the fallen world. And when you're kind of reading through the Bible, you think, oh, great, a poem. That's awesome, like art and stuff. Uh, but this is, this is what it says. Uh, Lamech said to his wives, which there's already a problem there. I don't have time to unpack. Um, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, which is this number for absolute completion. What's he saying? He's saying, you slap me in the face and I'll cut your head off. You come to spill my blood, I'll kill your whole family. And, And this mentality then seeped itself into the human conscious. It, it, it became our animal gut reaction to evil that was visited upon us. And so what happens, we have this protect me. I'm gonna protect me and my happiness and my stuff and my clan and my bottom line over yours at all costs. It, it is self-preservation on steroids. As a result, human evil tends to echo once it's visited upon someone and and get louder over time. And really echo isn't the right word because an echo actually gets quieter each time it bounces. But there's this tendency for human evil in in a fallen world to reverberate and get exponentially louder over time as each person takes in revenge more than what was done to them. In a series of overreactions, it actually picks up momentum. Let me give you a modern day example. By a show of hands, how many of you have heard of Franz Ferdinand? A few of you? Okay, most of you. Um, Okay, by another show of hands, how many of you have heard of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria? Okay, a few of you have. So, on June 28th, 1914, Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by a man named Gavrilo Princip. And under the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye, I'm going to argue that the um, proper course of action after that assassination happened would be for um, Gavrilo, at most, to give his life, or for his life to be taken from him. Not his family's life, not his friend's life, not his like-minded countrymen, just him, one for one, an eye for an eye. But instead, what happened after that assassination was increasing rounds of violence and aggression and revenge and and retribution until all of the world's superpowers were involved and the conflict would ultimately cost the lives of 38 million people, many of them civilians. And after the fact, we called that conflict uh, World War I. Now, 
in that conflict and series of retributions, uh, atrocities were committed on both sides. And so in the aftermath of that war, uh, particularly harsh sanctions were imposed on several countries. And these uh, sanctions, I'm going to argue, were not imposed of, uh, of, in the name of creating um, harmony and peace and forgiveness, but just as likely they were done in the name of revenge. And in some of these countries, like Germany, the sanctions were so incredibly harsh that the entire country was plunged into absolute poverty. And in their desperation, they turned to a man that they didn't fully understand. And you know this man's name. His name was Adolf Hitler. And what happened next is that that sparked yet another round of echoes and, and revenge was to be had and a whole nother conflict developed, which we call World War II, in which 50 to 80 million people died. An unfathomable number. We cannot picture that number in our minds. And so instead of what I believe could have been or should have been under Old Testament law, an eye for an eye, what we have is a is hundred million or even hundreds of millions of dead and counting. And in the aftermath of that conflict, um, the world unquestionably backed Israel in yet another war to take over what was then called Palestine without blinking an eye. We said, yep, that's right. So another war, more dead, more reverberations, more revenge to be had. And, and the Middle East has been grinding against the modern West ever since. The, the echoes and the reverberations, they're still to be had. There's people right now in this moment who are swearing revenge for things that have been done in the past. It echoes and echoes and echoes. And it's into that world that God spoke to his people and said, no, enough. Lamech and his progeny have had their day. I'm giving you a new way of dealing with evil within your society. And so what I want you to do if and when evil comes is I want you to, within your system of justice, just balance it out. Justice was to be achieved through equalization. So God said, hey, set your passionate desire, your animalistic Lamech style desire for revenge aside and, and just balance out the equation, and that's it. Call the evil to account, but, but then it's done. No more echoes, no more reverberations. It, it, achieve an equilibrium and, and move on. Interestingly enough, um, our modern-day court system still operates on this principle. We think, oh, that's so outdated and archaic, um, but this is how our legal system works. And when evil or personal injury is visited upon a person within our legal system, um, we use the same thing. So if you take someone's life, we believe in this country that you should give your life, either through um, giving your life in prison or uh, in the electric chair. Eye for an eye, life for a life. If in a business transaction you steal $40,000, well, the system says you should be made to repay all of that $40,000 and perhaps even more as a penalty for what you did. The, the eye for an eye mentality is still fully operative in our system of government. And I would argue, argue actually that as a national policy, uh, it makes sense. It, it, and for ancient Israel, as a nation state, for as a national policy, I, I think it made sense. 
as a means of limiting societal evil and cutting off that reverberation and, and addressing it and balancing the equation. But now, Jesus is showing us the true heart behind the law. And he's speaking to his disciples and really to the community of disciples that will one day be called the church. And he's giving them a whole new approach to overcoming evil and addressing personal injury. And at first glance, it sounds ridiculous. He just says, don't resist an evil person. Which, we have to admit, doesn't sound safe or effective. And I don't know about you, but this instantly raises all sorts of questions in my mind about um, self-defense and just war and pacifism and does this apply to nations as well as individuals? Should, should they turn the other cheek? And is, does this apply to my personal life or my public life or to both? And I think that those are great conversations to have. Uh, and honestly, as a community, I hope that we're open to having them. But for this morning, I want us to focus in on what we believe is the most central teaching of Jesus that's embedded here, which is the call of Jesus on his disciples to respond to personal injury with creative and nonviolent methods. In this way, Jesus says, you will not only mirror your father in heaven and follow in my footsteps, but you will find yourself operating in a curiously effective method for overcoming evil. And he gives us three examples, three outworkings or illustrations of what that might look like. First, and perhaps the most classic, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. This speaks to personal injury of a physical kind, um, but really, I think even more appropriately, it speaks to a public show of humiliation. As a man, I can tell you it is far more humiliating to be slapped than it is to be punched. And when this happens, um, your face is red, not from the physical contact that was made, but for that feeling of, of shame that, that burns, that embarrassment, that cries out for retribution right then and there. He slapped you in the face, you punch him back, you slap him back right now. And so Jesus says, don't go beyond the slap and punch them in the face. Uh, that would actually be a violation of the law of Moses and it would cause escalation and reverberation. We, we can't do that. Uh, but really, if you want to operate in the kingdom of God, then don't even slap them back. Stand your ground with your head held high and, and keep your honor, keep your dignity. Don't stoop to their level. And if they take it upon themselves to slap the other cheek, then that is on them. Next, Jesus says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your jacket also. Okay, so now someone's not after um, your honor or to physically harm you. They're after your stuff. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's your bottom line or your profit margin or whatever. Uh, but they're after something, perhaps something that isn't rightfully theirs. But either way, rather than resisting them and hiring a better attorney and countersuing and seeking to derail them and reach back and take their shirt from them, instead, Jesus says, I, I want you to catch them off guard. 
I, I want you to do something that they're not expecting. When they sue you for your shirt and they're in need and you're not, I want you to give them something they didn't ask for. I want you to give them your coat. That's even more valuable. Just give it to them and see what happens. And if someone asks you to walk a mile with them, then walk two miles instead of one, which thousands of years removed is a bit lost on us. But what Jesus was referring to was the right of Roman soldiers, the occupiers and oppressors of Israel, um, to force an Israelite to carry their armor for them, which was insulting in more ways than one. I mean, here you have this, this oppressor who has defiled your country, insulted you in every way, kept you subjugated, humiliated, and in poverty, and who now, under Roman law, has the right to force you to carry their armor, which could weigh up to 40 pounds, up to one mile. And Jesus is saying, um, hey, if you... Uh, if you get caught in this situation, and this is just humiliating, as if you were his slave, absolutely humiliating. If you get caught in this situation, I, I want you to do something that's going to catch him off guard and it's going to get him thinking about who he is and what he's up to and who you are. What I want you to do is when you hit that mile mark and the average person would drop the armor and raise one of their fingers and walk away, I, I, I want you to stand there and I want you to look him in the eye and, and I want you to say, hey, I'm actually free right now. Um, would you like me to go another mile with you? I, I'd be happy to do that and, and, and see, see what happens. Which leaves us thinking, okay, Jesus, why, why would I want to do any of that stuff? What, what, are, you, what are you getting at here? And it turns out that Jesus actually knows something about human nature. And he has incredible insight into how to derail anger using nonviolence. First, Jesus is saying, don't stoop to their level. When someone intrudes into your world with a slap or a lawsuit or an oppressive act, don't just slap them back. Because the second you do, you actually justify their method and you give them fuel to continue in what they're doing. If someone slaps you on the face and you slap them right back, then it's game on. You have both bought into the same game. You're both playing by the same rules. They are justified in what they've done and may the best slapper win. But if you... After being given a slap, stand defiance and courageous in nonviolent resistance. Uh, you not only preserve your honor, the very honor they were attempting to strip from you, you actually rise above their level and you expose evil for what it really is. The shame that they tried to impose on you is curiously bent back onto their own heads. And I've never been uh, slapped in the face in, in public before, but I've seen this happen at least once. And as I was um, preparing the message, I had this memory come rushing back to mind. Uh, and it was actually in the high school cafeteria and went to a big high school, really rough public high school. There's hundreds of people in the cafeteria. And as there was every few days or once a week or whatever, a, a fight broke out. 
And so these two um, guys, David and Alex, um, you know, got into a scuffle and all of a sudden they're on their feet and, and they're trying to look big and they're in each other's faces and, and you can just tell, okay, it's a fight. And the whole lunchroom turns their attention toward these two guys. And so Alex, he starts, he winds up and he just punches David in the face. And David kind of stumbles and, and goes down or whatever. And, and David gets back up and he does absolutely nothing. He, he just stares back at Alex. He doesn't throw a punch. And so now all eyes are on Alex and David and Alex doesn't quite know what to do. And so he winds up and he just slaps David across the face. You can hear it from, from wall to wall. And, and David, and he's, he's just trying to humiliate him and trying to provoke him into the fight that everyone is anticipating, that we're all waiting for. And, and David just stood there and, and stared back at him. And, and all of a sudden, there was this, this shift in, in, in the mood in the room because we were all hoping for, for a fair fight, for a good fight. We were cheering for it. But now... Alex was just slapping an, an innocent man. And, and, and it just left this bitter taste. All, all of a sudden, the, the mood shifted and people actually started booing Alex. And now, now all eyes are on Alex. Now he's humiliated. He's embarrassed. He doesn't know what to do. And so he just runs out of the lunchroom and straight out of the school. And, and, and David's standing there. And, and people are starting to, they're actually starting to cheer for him. We, we went to a rough high, I, we loved a good fight at our high school. But curiously, here we are cheering for David who did nothing but receive the punch and nothing but receive the slap. And he looked around and just sat back down and kept eating his lunch. And, and we, we couldn't articulate it at the time. I was an atheist and I didn't even, I didn't know what I was witnessing but there was this sense in the room that wisdom is proved right by what it does. It, it, you could see it shift the, the mood in the room. And it might sound like a, a trivial example, but there is this curious and compelling beauty to what Jesus calls us to. Because not only does it mimic Jesus and make a statement along the way, this actually works. You see, Jesus, believe it or not, um, was actually really wise. And by giving this command to his followers, he isn't ignoring the reality of evil. He's actually giving us a means of mastery over it. Because Jesus knew something about evil that most of us don't grasp. He knew the mechanics of evil and how it works um, far better than we ever will. And, and so what he's doing here is, is giving us this way of, of conquering it. He's saying nonviolent resistance, far from handing evil the victory, actually steals the victory away from evil and deflates it in the process. Because evil is fueled by resistance. You have to understand that your tormentor is counting on your anger, is counting on your resistance, is counting on your counter-violence as a means of fueling the evil that they find within themselves. They unleash their anger. They're anticipating that you will unleash yours back, which will further fuel them, and it's game on. Anger feeds on anger, but when it's met 
with a different response, when it's met with loving kindness, unexpectedly, evil begins to starve. In fact, violence stands condemned by its failure to evoke counterviolence. And suddenly, in that moment, the kingdom of God, with all of its resources, comes to bear on the situation. And the one imposing on us senses that something has shifted. They sense that they're no longer in control. And that you, far from being a doormat as you intended and, as, and feared, have now curiously gained the upper hand. And, and, and they're losing control. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, the only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it is looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the fire. But when it meets patient endurance instead of opposition, it has met its match. Of course, this can only happen when the last ounce of resistance is abandoned and the renunciation of revenge is complete. Then evil cannot find its mark. It can breed no further evil and it is left barren. And, and it's difficult and it's potentially humiliating and it takes incredible risk and patience, but it works. This this is how India overthrew the British. This is how Martin Luther King fundamentally changed America. This is how the Jesus movement spread like wildfire and overtook the very Roman Empire that sought to violently stamp it out. Somehow, through creative, nonviolent resistance, incredible and lasting victories have been won. And instead of sending the British home defeated to rally a bigger army and come back in escalating rounds of violence, they walked away from India and gave them their independence. And instead of leading African Americans um, to violently dominate white Americans, which would have led to reverberating, escalating rounds of violence, somehow Martin Luther King won the heart of this nation and exposed our evil for what it was. Shaming the very ones who, who sought to shame him. If he had been alive he would have gone from fighting for African-American access to the polls to watching an African-American gain access to the White House. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm, I'm talking about progress. I'm talking about lasting victory that only nonviolent resistance can achieve. I'm talking about not dozens, not thousands, but potentially millions of followers of Jesus who in the wake of his resurrection were executed by the Romans, often in public humiliating ways, as the Romans desperately attempted to maintain the power of their empire with Caesar as Lord and not Jesus. And through nonviolent resistance, the disciples became Rome's worst nightmare. Violent rebellions were snuffed out all the time. 
But this nonviolent rebellion, it, it was something different. They didn't know what to do. It was unstoppable. For every follower of Jesus that went nonviolently to their public execution, it's estimated by some historians that three more bystanders right then and there committed their lives to Jesus and became his followers. And so the harder they tried to stamp it out and the more nonviolent resistance was displayed, the more the movement spread because they could see in their response, these people are different. They're not operating in tit for tat and eye for eye and revenge and reverberation. They have a hope that goes beyond the grave. They're operating on a different frequency and I want in. I want what they have. And the movement spread. And eventually, given enough time, that movement overtook Rome itself. And after centuries of executions, Christianity became the official religion of the empire and the world would never be the same. As followers of Jesus, we have forsaken our rights and now we find ourselves rooted in Christ and we are free to respond to personal injury in new and fresh and creative and beautiful ways. We no longer need to, to respond in kind to threats against our honor and sense of shame because our sense of honor and shame are no longer rooted in what other people think of us or what our classmates think or what our coworkers think of us. It is now rooted in Jesus alone. That's where I get my identity, my sense of honor and shame. Forget about the rest. I no longer need to zealously defend my possessions because they no longer define my quality of life in the kingdom. They no longer define what makes me happy or sad. Here, if you're in need, you can have this. Please actually accept this in the name of Jesus. This is for you. Suddenly, the reputation and glory of Jesus begin to matter more to us than how many shirts we have or how many cars we can fit in our driveway. And we no longer need to violently throw off the rights of the oppressor through angry retaliation, but through patient endurance and loving kindness, we show them the error and evil of their ways. When you react that way, it forces the perpetrator to question what type of person they really are. And they begin to see through your nonviolent resistance, I'm acting in anger and worse. What, what kind of person am I? And so in Jesus, what we see and what we're reminded of is that we follow a crucified Messiah who literally overcame the evil of the world by hanging on a cross. No counter-testimony, no counter-propaganda, no counter-rumors, no angels from heaven to smite his oppressors and return slap for slap. We, we see something totally different. And in it, he achieved the greatest victory the world has ever known. And you, you belong to him. And you follow him. 
Jesus exposed the evil of the world for what it was, conquering it in the process. So in Jesus, we not only find an example to follow and by him dwelling inside of us, we not only find the strength to then be able to go and live this out. In Jesus, we actually find a whole new perspective on life. In our atheism, our injury becomes our world. It's all that exists. It eclipses everything else. It cries out. It demands for retribution. It, it consumes us. It can define us. But now, Jesus is saying, I, I, I want you to trust them into God's hands. I, I want you to take a broader perspective. Don't pretend it wasn't evil. It was. Don't lash back in even greater harm. Don't even seek equalization. Instead, tr trust them to me. Trust in God's justice and God's vengeance and that God is ultimately responsible for justice and for judgment and for steering all of creation in, into a fitting and, and final conclusion that actually makes more sense than, than my retribution and my revenge. Next, in Jesus, uh, we're now actually capable and set free to identify with the weakness of the one who imposed and intruded into our world. Because we actually know in Jesus um, that we are weak and sinful. And in the total absence of Jesus, we would behave the same way. And we would do the same thing. We, we could say, yeah, I, I get it. Because if I had been left in darkness, I would be doing the exact same thing. We slowly learn to see others, not as a foreign will to be muted and dismantled and destroyed. We actually learn to see the other as an image bearer of God who is starving, whether they know it or not, starving for the kingdom of heaven. And, and we begin to cultivate such a deep empathy and understanding for them for those that are still in darkness, that we can finally become the type of people who say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To our oppressors, to our annoyances, to our exes, to our murderers, Father, they don't know. They don't know you. They don't know your love. They don't know where all of creation is headed. They don't know. Do you know how Jesus was able to pray that over his murderers? Because it was true. And, and he knew it. He, he had a different perspective and he was able to pray over his murder. So tomorrow morning, when we head back to our classrooms and, and our boardrooms and our dorm rooms and our living rooms, it will only be a matter of time before personal injury and offense come crashing into your world. It's just a matter of, in the slap of a child, in, in, in the defiant insult of a student, in, in the poisonous rumor planted by the coworker who won't stop planting those poisonous it, it, Whatever it is for you in, in your world, in the misplaced threat, in the unfounded lawsuit, and it goes on and on in a thousand different forms. It will crash into your world. And Jesus is going to be there in that moment whispering to you, 
whether you pause long enough to hear him or not, whispering to you, saying, take heart. I have overcome the world. And you, you belong to me. You you are my treasured possession. You are my joy. You are nothing short of the light of the world, a city on a hill, the salt of the earth. This, This is who you are. Follow me right now. Follow me. Turn the other cheek. Because those who follow me will never, ever be put to shame. And as you share in my suffering, you will share in my glory. You, You will share in my healing. You will share in my joy. You will share in my resurrection in the age to come. Every time that you turn the other cheek, you not only recognize that God is the ultimate judge and I'm trusting them into his hands, you throw the door wide open for the kingdom of God to come flooding into that situation right then and there with grace, with light, with truth, with patient endurance, with loving kindness through creative, nonviolent response to the injury and insults you become the light of the world, a light that will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Let's pray.